Welcome to episode 227 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. I recently read a Bloomberg NEF article titled, China's Remote Deserts Are Hiding an Energy Revolution. It started with the story of a gigantic solar farm in the Kabuki Desert that will power 1.1 million homes. By 2030, China will have built the equivalent of 224 more projects like this in the sparsely populated region of Inner Mongolia, about 500 kilometers inland from Beijing. By 2030, China will be home to 3.9 terawatts of solar generation capacity, more than three times uh, what it will be what it was in 2022. This incredible shift to clean electricity is driven by the central government and is a key component of President Xi Jinping's head uh, plan to green the national power grid. So I'm going to talk to Dr. Mihel Midan, uh, head of China Energy Research at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. She's quoted in the Bloomberg article. I've interviewed her before and wanted to get her perspective on the transformation of China's power grid. So, Michal, welcome to the interview. Thank you, Markham. It's good to be back. This is fascinating because I, our understanding here in Canada, I'm pretty confident, is rooted in a decade or two. We're out of touch by a decade or two. We tend to think of China as being dominated, the power grid dominated by coal and not it's not changing. They're building more coal. That's our focus. But really, that things have changed a lot in the last, what, three or four years? Things have changed a lot over time. I think you're right. Um, but it is still has a power grid that is dominated by coal. Um, it is today the power grid is sort of two thirds dominated by coal, and that has gone down dramatically from what it was five, six, and obviously 20 years ago. Um, but I think it is interesting that the China narrative, you can pick and choose your data points and you can find both the leader in energy transition, but also the laggard in energy transition if you look at the data. But the rollout and the build out of renewables is nothing short of phenomenal in China. There is a quote in the Bloomberg article uh, from you. Uh, China is relying on these large wind and solar bases to play a key role in its new energy system. What do you mean by new energy system? So the Chinese government has come out with a plan that talks about the new energy system that will predominantly rely on renewables um, as it looks to decarbonize and as it looks to make that shift from, again, a system that was 80% fossil fuels to one that is 80% renewables. Um, and so as we go forward, the idea is for renewables to increasingly account for the bulk of growth, because we have to bear in mind that unlike in developing economies in Canada and the West, where total energy consumption has peaked or is peaking, China, as many other developing economies, still has a lot of growth. So it is not only trying to replace the existing energy system and green the existing energy system, but it also needs to maintain and ensure supplies as the economy continues to grow and energy consumption continues to increase. So the new energy system is one that is increasingly fueled by green and renewable energy sources. Now you had mentioned that eventually renewables will account for 20%, or sorry, 80% of, of the power grid. 
is the goal of the Chinese government to eventually get to a point where renewables are 80, 90, 95% and coal is simple, is mostly a backup? Yes. So the ambition is to reach 80% renewables um, in primary energy mix by 2060. That's sort of part of the 2030, 2060 pledge, the Shuangtan that you spoke to Herbert Crowther about. Uh, in 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 a previous podcast, but really the idea is for renewables to account for the bulk of China's grid and capacity, and for coal to be an a balancing factor. Now it's interesting that the perceptions of the role of coal have changed as well over the past few years. So just as we've seen the surge in renewable capacity and additions, coal has also come back to take center stage. Um, in China's energy mix, whereas in a lot of Western economies, um, gas is the kind of flexible source of power that helps to deal with the intermittency of renewable energy. But in China, the 14th five-year plan, which runs from 2021 to 2025, actually talks about coal as being the backup for intermittent renewables. So we are seeing this tension in China's energy policy where coal is still perceived as the backbone of the energy system, but is increasingly being built and added as a complement to renewables. But the fact that China is adding and building up so much coal could actually complicate and, and potentially even slightly slow down the addition of renewables, not to a degree where they jeopardize this sort of 80% target or China's energy transition um, pledge or strategy, but that it makes it costlier and more complicated in the kind of short and medium term. The help us understand how policy uh, gets made in China. My understanding is that the central government sets the priorities, sets the goals, sets the the broad framework for uh, regulatory and, and policy framework, and then it's up to the provincial governments and the local governments to enact them. Is that correct? That is exactly how it works. The central government gives the general direction of travel it, in the five-year plans and in other big policy documents. It gives the signal of where it would like to see the energy system go. Uh, for certain things, it will give more incentives. It could be um, subsidies or support or tariffs. It could ease um, import restrictions or help exports, depending on the sector that's in discussion. So it can get a bit more um, detailed, I guess, in the kind of support that it chooses to give. But effectively, then the build out, the development happens uh, on the provincial level. And it is also a sectoral story then, right? It's the companies that can take the initiative and add capacity. Now, just as provinces and cities can add and contribute to the momentum, they can also stall momentum. So they have a distortive capacity as much as they have a sort of supportive capacity. Yeah, we're seeing that in Canada. There are some key provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan that are actively resisting the Canadian government's move to green the uh, Canadian grid. And when I say actively, I, I mean, you know, saying that we're not going to recognize federal powers uh, and federal legislation. We will resist them. We'll even instruct, um, you know, we'll, we'll instruct uh, utilities to disregard them, which is a fairly radical uh, thing in, in a confederation like Canada. So well, that's kind of my framework for understanding this. How 
much op, how much are provincial and local governments able to push back or delay in the Chinese context? I think they have a great ability to push back and delay. They need to do it subtly so that they can still appear to be um, responding or supporting a central government edict. So it cannot be seen as very blatantly sort of going against the government. I think what is helping, I guess, in this instance, both the coal build out and the renewable build out, the China has two different policy strands. The first is the energy transition and the need to decarbonize the grid. And let's not forget that China is a leader globally in in manufacturing, not just in deploying renewables. So that is where local governments can, again, issue supportive policies to build new capacity and new infrastructure. The other policy strand is energy security. Um, and even though two, three years ago, we did see some discussion in China that renewables offer energy security, because of course you're not import dependent on oil or gas, um, that discussion has actually been much more muted today. And really the main focus of energy security and reliability is coal. And it is really in coal that um, provincial governments have a distortive capacity. And we have seen since the beginning of 2022 um, that China has approved 154 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity and started construction of 92 gigawatts. Um, it is the most in the world and it is effectively the only country in the world. And this is really provincial governments that need a form of economic stimulus, that need a way to invigorate growth under the guise of reliability and security on the provincial level. Um, and that has been a very distortive factor. The other element is then the dispatch rules, sort of how the how things get onto the grid. And that's where they have long-term deals. Again, this is all sort of favored by the government because you want reliability and security, then they want long-term bilateral deals signed between suppliers and the grid. And that's where the preferential sort of various forms of preferential policies come in and support coal. Is it fair to say that the long arc of the uh, power sector policy from the, the governments is the switch to clean electricity, to renewables, but also hydro and nuclear as well. Um, but the, the path along that arc, probably going to be a little messy. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to characterize it because, you know, the numbers I've cited for coal are, are phenomenal, but then you sort of think about the additions of, of wind and solar photovoltaic this year, we're probably going to reach 230 gigawatts of installed capacity just this year. And just as we talked about the distortive capabilities of provincial governments, you know, you cited the Bloomberg article that talked about the wind and solar bases in northwestern China and inner Mongolia, in the areas that we perceive to be the wind and, and solar rich provinces in China, the reality is that China's resource base is, is pretty good throughout the country. Um, those northwestern and western provinces where there, there are these bases that are being built need to be connected with a grid to the big eastern uh, coastal provinces where much of the consumption takes place. And that has been the story. That has also been the story of some curtailment that has happened in China. That's one focus of build out. 
but and this is the competitive dynamic between provinces a lot of the eastern provinces are adding distributed solar and just and offshore wind um because again they they need to generate growth but they also need to show the central government that they are advancing the energy transition targets and the decarbonization goals um so we do have this competitive dynamic between provinces that is spurring additions and new deployment of renewable energy. What role does the over uh, capacity on the manufacturing side of renewables play in in this situation that we're talking about? Uh, I think I read in the Bloomberg article that China's capacity to manufacture solar panels will be, if it isn't already, it will soon be four times the annual installations from last year. And I wonder if some of this is is driven by the fact that China has these solar panel uh, factories and other equipment, of course, uh, that are sitting around with all the spare capacity, which lowers prices, and it makes it particularly attractive then to have policies that promote solar. Uh, does that make any sense? I mean, you have this, and we've seen it in other industrial policies, this push, um, and this is very much both local governments and corporates, right, and industrial actors that see new opportunities. Again, this is something that is very much supported by the central government. Usually there is some form of financing attached to it. It doesn't have to be subsidies, but it can be favorable approvals for or sort of easier access to land or to labor, there will be something that makes it advantageous. And then a lot of companies rush into it because they see it as a new area of growth. That tends to generate overcapacity. Again, we have provinces and companies competing against each other, and they often have to operate at razor thin margins. Um, that then can lead to a cycle of consolidation that the central government will try to impose because costs come down too low sometimes in the perception um, but China does have a huge amount of capacity for solar. There was a report, I think it was the New York Times that reported that China will have gigafactories, so enough factories that produce batteries um, that can supply most of, I think it was the global needs up until 2030. I think the question of how, what happens to this overcapacity and whether or not it gets resolved also depends on how the rest of the world looks at China. Now, of course, in Europe, there are now... Um, there are now investigations into subsidies that have gone into Chinese EVs and potentially wind turbines and potential tariffs that will be imposed on those exports. Now, we have had already a round of tariffs that were imposed on Chinese um, solar manufacturers, and that just meant that more stayed inside China. Prices came down. There was greater deployment in China. Um, but I think I think we will see with the world needing so much more of everything for the energy transition, Ultimately, China having this overcapacity and lower costs could be beneficial for the global energy transition. It kind of depends where governments want to take this, but that resource is available and could help accelerate it. Michal, I, I have a bit of a, a theory, maybe it's a hypothesis, that uh, China has now emerged as an, a clean energy industrial power in some ways similar to the way the America, uh, United States emerged from World War II as an industrial power. And given the focus on clean energy, uh, both clean energy industry, so building the equipment for 
you know the solar panels and the and the wind turbines and so on and also the on the demand side on the consumption side and it's so big and so powerful and it's scaled up and 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 produces low cost uh technologies that it it's going to be the primary driver of the adoption of clean energy and the expansion of clean energy industry going forward. And the, the US and, and Europe are going to be scrambling to catch up other countries, emerging economies like India will also try to draft in behind behind China. I just wonder what you think of that, uh, that hypothesis. I would absolutely agree with that hypothesis that China is emerging and it has already emerged, right, as the leader in really throughout the entire supply chain. Um, we've just published a paper with Rusi, um, another think tank in the UK, looking at China's dominance and China's presence throughout the supply chain. And it is pretty remarkable to see that from the extraction of the ores through the processing, and the processing is really the main part, and then the production of intermediate goods, China holds a major stake in the extraction, it is actually pretty small. It's only 20-30%. Um, but then in the processing, it could be anywhere from 60 to 100%, depending on the process and on and on the ore or the metal that we're talking about. And you know, when Europe, when we think about that in Europe, after, you know, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened and we talked about market concentration for Russian gas in Europe, Russia accounted for 40% of European gas. So when we think about China owning or sort of being responsible for 60 to 80 percent and even more of the processing of a lot of these uh, materials and ores, that is a very significant concentration. But as I say, it's not just in one bit of the supply chain. It is throughout those supply chains. And it goes to sort of entire ecosystems of skilled workers and inputs that go into the manufacturing and the chemicals and the processes. And so it is a very um critical and strong dominance that China has on these supply chains. Now, I think on one hand that has created, but that has highlighted the need to diversify and to make sure that we have um, deeper, broader, wider supply chains of everything, right? From the extraction through to the processing. It's also highlighted how difficult it is going to be to do it if governments are trying to do it without China, um, that that is going to be a very um, problematic and and costly process. Now, I think as you as you highlighted, the U.S. and the EU have sort of woken up in the past two three years and issued the Inflation Reduction Act and the Net Zero Industry Act and Critical Materials Partnership. China's policies date back 10, 20, 30 years in some instances. Now, China doesn't have a critical materials policy, or but it has a number of industrial policies that mean that it is already very deeply rooted in these supply chains. So in a way, China is very much ahead of the curve. Um, and Europe and the US are now struggling to catch up. And I think they need to be a bit smarter and a bit more sort of focused about where and how they catch up um, rather than just trying to replicate everything. But for emerging markets, I think this could actually be both an opportunity um, and not just sort of a loss. I want to talk about those emerging markets because um, there's a debate uh, in Canada around long energy transition or sorry, slow energy transition versus fast energy transition. And the the 
And the analytical basis for the slow energy transition comes from OPEC's uh, oil outlook report that was released uh, uh, early October, I think. And one of their assumptions is that clean energy technologies like solar and wind and electric vehicles are not economic. Though they may be economic in some in some cases, in some regions and so on, but really they're not. Fundamentally, they haven't passed the inflection point uh, on the adoption curve where they're really cost competitive in the marketplace. They require government policies. And then the assumption, to make another assumption, which is that governments in emerging economies can't afford them, those policies. And therefore, those markets will... Uh, stick with oil and gas and to, and to some extent coal rather than than making the transition. I, but I kind of hew to the fast transition argument, which says that that as the US and EU expand their industrial capacity around clean energy technologies, China in particular has to find new markets for its its huge uh, manufacturing capacity. So if you can't sell solar panels in the EU or the US, where are you going to sell them to? Well, you're going to sell them to in India and, and parts of Asia and, and uh, Latin America and Africa and places like that. And they've already got the Belt and Road Initiative with that is switching from focusing on coal to switching on renewable energy. That seems to me to be a more, a more compelling argument. But I, I'm interested in your take in it. I mean, it's a very interesting debate, right? And then you can you find very convincing proponents of both. Um, for the slow energy transition, you also can just look at the fact that we aren't on track to meeting our existing targets, right? Europe, with its Fit for 55 and the various ambitions, is not on track to meeting them. And when we think about COP that is taking place right now and the global stock take, it will show that we are falling short of where we need to be. Um now, does that mean that we can't? I think that the whole question about the energy transition is that it is one that will require a lot of government support. Because um, equally, you find a lot of analysis about how renewables are already at grid parity or even below grid parity if you look at the dispatch basis. But then you need to add grid infrastructure and you need to build out some of the physical infrastructure. You also need to change some of the market mechanisms and the way that they price the various costs. So you need government intervention and you need government will, I think, to different degrees and to different levels, but you need it in order to make the energy transition happen. Equally, we are still likely to have oil and gas in the mix for another decade or two, but we do need to deal with the emissions that come from them. CCUS is currently not economically competitive. Again, governments will need to support that. I agree with the argument on the fast transition as long as there is government will, as there is, and there is an increase in manufacturing and production around the world, then we will have more of these supplies, more of the renewables that we can deploy. To add to your argument about the emerging markets, it's not just that China will sell to those emerging markets if the US and the EU are sort of markets that are shut, that it is shut out of, um, but also because it can localize some of its industries in those markets and therefore sort of blur its Chinese origin, so to speak, and then invest in the US and the EU through Vietnam, Mexico, Morocco, Africa, other countries that you can, you know, pick and choose. Um, so I think there is that element that there will be sort of greater uptake 
um, from a lot of emerging markets um, through the kind of China presence and through this global competition. But even this global competition won't necessarily be positive if there aren't some elements of support. And we're seeing at COP28 now as well, the discussions about financing and how this support will be made available um, to a lot of emerging markets. And lastly, we can't forget and we shouldn't forget that a lot of these emerging markets are where some of the critical minerals are located and extracted. And we're seeing in Indonesia, for instance, a push for the nickel, not just to be extracted, but also to be processed and for the value add to be sort of located in Indonesia. It will be up to the Indonesian government to highlight whether that processing and that process is fueled by coal or gas or renewables. So emerging markets also have agency in this. And I guess it's not a clear-cut answer. Is it a slow transition or an energy or a fast transition? It's probably going to be a dual-track transition in different parts of the world. Uh, but it, I think we shouldn't resign ourselves to assume that it will be a slow transition. I think it can certainly be a much more accelerated transition. That's an interesting perspective. I I, I take a little different uh, tact on that or tack on that, and and that is that I think in most cases. The clean energy technologies like wind and solar and EVs and so on are, are really are competitive. They now, in many cases, are the low cost alternative. And as we we scale up the uh, manufacture of, of these, the, the costs are going to drop further. They'll be learning cost. Uh, uh, learn, well, the learning curve will work in our to our advantage. And really, the the role of policy now. I think is to determine pace of the energy transition, not if the energy transition is going to happen. And I think OPEC has overstated its case. I, I think that there's not going to be, the dual track will not be uh, developing economies using oil and gas and, and coal and the OECD countries uh, using uh, switching to renewables and, and uh, nuclear and what have you. And on all of the, the technologies associated with that, I, I think that we're going. It's going to be much messier and and much more complex in the emerging economies. All of which will argue ultimately for a for a fast fast. It'll be deg which degree of fast? Will it be fast, faster, or fastest? As opposed to will it be slow? Anyway, that's my take. What what. And to your point, right, but it's not just about emerging economies. Developing economies are also still reliant on coal. If we take the example of Germany and gas, certainly the, the crisis in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has meant that it is messier and more complicated everywhere. Um, and I agree with you that the supplies are available, the infrastructure is available. I also think it, it shouldn't be a question of, or it shouldn't be pitted as fossil fuels against renewables, because in the short term, we're going to need both. So it is a question of how do we ensure that it is the lowest emission source? If we can do CCUS in a cost competitive way, why not do it? And you know, oil and gas can't just sit back and say, we're around or we're not around. They have to try and report and verify their methane emissions and other emissions along the supply chain. I mean. But this is a system-wide transformation, and I think it goes also beyond the availability of technology and the cost of technology, but also there's a cost to rejigging the entire infrastructure and the entire system, and that will be a cost. Now, who bears that cost? Is it industry, developers, cons the consumers? That's something the politicians don't like to talk about, 
But that is an additional cost to the energy transition that has to be born and discussed. But I agree with you, it is going to be messy, it is going to happen, and it has to happen. Well, we've this has been a very interesting conversation about, you know, the slow versus fast uh, transition arguments. But I want before I let you go, I do want to get back to the Chinese uh, power sector and the the policy changes and regulatory changes that are part and parcel of this switch to renewables. And maybe I could get you to talk a little bit about power market liberalization, provincial level renewable portfolio standards. Uh, distributed renewables. Um, what have you? Uh, what can you tell us about that? So that is moving actually at a relatively slow pace. There's been a lot of talk about power market reform, and I think we always have to be a bit careful when we talk about market reforms in China. Um, the intention is rarely, if ever, to completely liberalize markets as we understand it in the West, or to sort of privatize these markets. It is, and we're seeing it increasingly in the past few years, that even as there is more talk about the markets playing a role, there is a greater desire to control. And that is the energy security narrative. That's the Xi Jinping administration that is that has become, or that has always been, um, very sort of close to the state-owned sector. Um, and so again, wanting to retain that control. Power market reform has been very slow um, and is really advanced at the margins. So we're not really seeing a huge amount of progress there. We published a paper recently on my colleague Anders Hovey has published a pretty long and detailed paper on sort of power sector reform and 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 its short advances. And actually the latest change that we've seen was um talk of of uh, capacity markets in China. And those ironically are likely to offset some of the losses that coal fired power plants are making in China and actually incentivize those somewhat perversely. Um, so the incentives actually right now to add more renewables to, to the local portfolio is very much an industrial push. It is what you described as the kind of long-term arc of China's energy transition, but the short-term policy moves and the short-term dynamics are actually complicating that longer-term arc, even though the ambition does remain to have markets impacting or sort of impacting resource allocation. But I think we have to bear in mind that that will be at the margins rather than the main driver. So the uh, an energy only market just pays for whatever electricity is, is generated, whereas capacity markets uh, also pay for some capacity to be on standby or, or, or idled. So is, is, are we moving if if the Chinese markets move to a capacity market, is that aimed at keeping the the coal plants around uh, as backup? Uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, that is the short term design, and obviously longer term this changes because again we're seeing these these short term adjustments to the realities, and over time they could help renewables become that capacity adjustment mechanism or gas fired power plants. But in the near term, because China's adding so much coal and coal is going to be some of that backup capacity and it is the biggest loss maker right now, it will in the short term perversely support coal. I, I've had some conversation with economists about how the markets and, and governments, uh, if you look at the, the EU and their uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism that they recently passed, but, but how to price in uh, emissions intensity. 
and into uh, exports or, you know, into everybody wants to is worried about the emissions intensity of their supply chains and their own product because customers are are asking for it. Uh, because governments have indicated that that's the direction they're going in and and companies want to respond and get on top of it. And, and I'm wondering, uh, to the extent to which China might be worrying that the while they're producing all of this wonderful, you know, these manufactured goods that go into the clean energy economies, they the emissions intensity of those project products is kind of it will be fairly high. And and is that any kind of a, a motivation for the government uh, to, you know, switch over to renewables, uh, you know, in a fairly rapid manner? I think that is certainly one of the kind of medium term incentives to switch to renewables to promote green hydrogen as well in the harder to abate sectors. I think the Chinese clearly recognize, and I think that is one of the fundamental drivers of, of China's sort of energy transition. It's not just the industrial opportunity, but it is also the threat that the Chinese industry will not be fit for purpose in a carbon conscious world. So I think that is clearly driving um, some of that move towards the energy transition. You have foreign investors in China that have net zero pledges and are, you know, they're pushing local officials to help them meet those targets by providing them with, with green resources and green power. So that is clearly a motivating force, not just for the central government, for local governments, but for Chinese industry. Chinese steel industry has a net zero target and a desire to, to move forward. China also has its own um, ETS, its own emissions trading system, which is still nascent and the prices are a fraction of the European emission trading system costs. But that, so while there is a desire to uh, implement real change in industrial capabilities and in manufacturing processes, there's also the rhetorical side of this, which is China has its own ETS, give us time. You know, this is against WTO uh, regulations. This is protectionist. So we're, we're seeing a bit of both. Um, and more vocal is the kind of the, the Chinese government protesting against this. But the reality is that a lot is happening in the industry and in the ETS to try and offset some of those negative impacts on the for the Chinese industry. Well, my final question for you is about distributed renewables, because we're seeing some discussion in North America about how industry, bigger companies that can afford this, are looking at the changes to the power grid and saying, you know, there's some instability here and we can't afford that. And plus, we can't also want to keep our our power costs as low as, as possible. And they're looking at, if not opting off the grid, they're at least looking at building out their own generation capacity with solar panels primarily. I guess that would be, I haven't heard much discussion around wind. And, I, and I'm wondering if that same motivation is working for the large industries in China. I would say slightly less so um, because all renewable projects in China have an obligation to add storage to it. Um, but also, and I think we've seen this in the debates, right, that initially everybody was worried that at 3% of renewables on the grid, we'd get instability, and that wasn't the case. And then it was 15%, and then we'd get a high level of instability, and that wasn't the case. And now we're, you know, in Europe, at least, we're at higher levels of renewable penetration. And the issue of instability is not as, as problematic as we thought it would be. China's not there yet, but there is that, um, as I said, that mandate to add storage. 
And a lot of the distributed solar is both a government initiative, and you do have some some industries that are adding it, but I think it is much more patchy and you're getting a bit of everything in China, um, but a, a less clear cut concern by industry and investment in industry to add distributed solar. Uh, I, I, I Your comment about the amount of renewables or intermittent resources that can be incorporated into a power grid uh, sort of, I've got another a good question around that because that is a big discussion in Alberta, the, the uh, which is kind of the, you know, the home of oil and gas in in Canada, and the the pre the premier there talked has gone on. I mean, they actually ran advertisements all across Canada telling Canadians that renewables will lead to power outages and people freezing in the dark. I mean, this is, and yet my perception of this, and you're a, you're a power sector expert, but my perception of this is that while there, of course, there have been hiccups and there have been difficulties and things don't always work as smoothly as we would hope, for the most part, those countries where power grids are starting to incorporate renewables at the 30% uh, or 40%, maybe even 50%, is they're coming up with a whole variety of mechanisms. It could be it could be demand response, it could be uh, market liberalization, it could be storage. And we're getting fairly innovative and clever about how to do this and still keep power grids pretty much stable. Is that a, a reasonable observation? I mean, I have to to correct you there. I'm not a power sector expert, um, so it's a bit hard for me to talk about what's happening in the rest of the world and how resilient. Sort of, it was more an observation that um, it has been more resilient sure. than people had expected. And I think sounds like you know more than I do about this. Well, fair enough. We'll let you off the hook on that one then. But Mihal, thank you very much. Lovely talking to you again, and we'll look forward to chatting with you in the future because it seems apparent to me that China we'll be talking about China a lot more uh, in the in the immediate future. So thank you very much for this. Thank you.